Palacia Fane and I are going to share the Dharma talk tonight. Uh, and I don't know if that'll be two half Dharma talks or we just go on forever. I, it's really hard to know. Um, I don't know how much I have to say uh, about one aspect of what we've been doing here. I don't think it's a lot, but well, let's see. In back of whatever I'm saying is the real hope that for those of you who have come with a Christian practice, that you can see something of value in Vipassana, not to become Buddhist, but to help you get on with what you're already doing. I, I sense that it's possible. I, I don't know very much about Christianity. But if it could help a Marxist, I don't see how it couldn't help a Christian. <laughs> Seriously. A few years ago, uh, in a group that we had at Cambridge, there was a man who was, uh, I would say, in the direction of being a militant, atheistic Marxist, a professor. And the woman that he was involved with had gotten quite involved in Vipassana meditation. And so he started to feel a gap between himself and her. And that was his only motive for taking the meditation. He told me right at the beginning, you know, he thought it was all a bunch of nonsense, but he really wanted to understand what she was learning so that their relationship wouldn't be damaged. And to his credit, he was, had the energy and the determination and the openness to explore his own mind. Now, in the very same group were two uh, people who were heavy into Buddhism. One was a scholar who only knew everything about Buddhism. <laughs> and another running close behind. This was only, uh, it was 10 weeks. We met for 10 weeks, two hours, once a week. And by about the seventh or eighth week, the fellow who was, whose belief was that he was a Marxist was starting to taste all kinds of things in meditation. And the people who were officially Buddhists were having a very hard time because of all the concepts that they kept tripping over. Uh, it was sort of two steps forward and ten steps backward, and then five steps forward and fifteen steps backwards. Um, it was a bumpy journey. Now, why was he able to do that? I mean, what is there about this practice that enables someone to do that? I think one of the things is that it has nothing to do with beliefs. Unless you get so invested in the belief that it incapacitates you and your ability to mobilize energy to do it. There is faith involved. It's a different kind of faith. It's a tentative, provisional faith. You have to try. It's the kind of faith that you need for anything else. And you have to give something your best effort to find out if there's anything there or not. It's not telling you to just go on faith. The faith is simply, look, I've tried it. It's helpful, been helpful for me. Please try it and see if it's helpful for you. So you have to have at least enough energy to um, jump in. You can't settle this one in your head. You can't kind of stay on the sidelines and discursively try to figure out whether it's true or whether it's going to uh, go against Christianity or for Christianity or you know, all those kinds of issues. I think you have to start swimming. Maybe you'll find that you drown. 
I mean, there are, there are life rafts here, so you don't have to worry about that. But you have to, it has to be done. It's something that we do. It's quite tangible, practical, palpable. So this person, this Marxist fellow, was willing to really look at his mind, starting by just exactly what we've been doing, looking at the breath, gradually the mind starting to calm down, examining thoughts and feelings and bodily sensations, just what we've all been, been doing. And he started to see things and experience things in consciousness that he had never known were there. This has nothing to do with a belief. Whether he was for or against or believed in God, or it had nothing to do with that. It was a pure, pure perception, direct. And of course, it challenged a lot of his beliefs. Okay. I hope that this practice uh, is helpful for you. And I have a limited ability to help in one sense because I really don't know very much about Christianity and I'm not being humble. I don't. But I thought of one way of at least trying. There have been a few uh, fragments from sacred texts, Christian texts, that have been very helpful for me. You know how sometimes you'll hear a phrase, it can just be an ordinary word said a certain way, or a sentence or a quote, and it just stays with you over and over and over and helps you. These two have, as I say, I know nothing about Christianity as a whole, or very little. And so my interpretation of this, uh, Father Theophane is certainly not responsible for it, uh, nor any other Christian. I don't know if I'm doing it an injustice. All I can say is that my understanding of it, which, by the way, only became interesting after I had started practicing Vipassana meditation. Before that, it would, it would have meant nothing to me. After practicing meditation, I think I understood at least some meaning in it, you know, based on what the best I can do. I don't know what commentators or uh, people who are steeped in this would say about what I'm about to say. Anyway, the quotes are, one is certainly well known, so I'd like to read it to you, and then try to, I'll read both of them to you, the two quotes, and then try to uh, translate that my understanding of this, into the very mundane, ordinary kinds of things that we've already started doing here and have been doing since Friday night. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Gospel, Matthew. That's a one that probably you've heard. Okay. Perhaps I'll read it again in a while. Just uh, Here's another one which is from Jesus in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, uh, Elaine Pagels, fairly recent book, The Gnostic Gospels. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. 
attribute it to Jesus. I'm going to read this one again. It's not as well known. It doesn't have sort of moth and rust to, you know, to stick in it. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. What we're doing in insight meditation is beginning exactly where we are, each one of us. Just what you've brought here, your body, your particular mind, tendencies, likes, dislikes, and so forth. And the area that we're examining, or as we're bringing awareness to, is exactly the realm of moths and rust and thieves. Buddhist terminology is less picturesque, impermanence, transiency, uncertainty, central to this teaching. So we're examining a realm which is not permanent, which arises and passes away, a more Buddhist way of talking about it. gets consumed. Everything does. Anything that has the nature to arise, to appear, also has the nature to disappear. That's just the way it is. All these conditions endlessly surfacing and disappearing. And what we're looking at when we, we pay attention to the breath, when we pay attention to our mind and our body, we're, we're, we're there. We're looking at that realm of rust, moths, and that's where we get hurt. We've all gotten hurt tremendously, all human beings. We're not imagining enlightenment. In the Buddhist tradition, as you probably know, the word God is not used, but enlightenment is, or liberation, or nirvana. Whether that's the equivalent to God, I don't know. My bias is that it is. Strong bias that it is. But for the moment, I'd rather not have to speculate about that. We start off where we are, which is we're looking at, at ignorance, our own ignorance. We're looking at the many ways in which we create sorrow for ourselves. Our mind, just as it is. Our body, just as it is. We're not imagining some beatific state. If we were to do that, it would just be another mental production. We'd be imagining enlightenment. And what would that be? It would be like a Hollywood movie with a happy ending. We don't know what enlightenment is. It's something that one comes to, one experiences. And so the starting point is working with suffering, working with the realm where we are. It's not all suffering. It's whatever is there. There's also happiness there. but we're not trying to make things any different than the way they are. Okay, is everyone clear on that? We're just breathing and we're just looking at the breath. We're just thinking and we're examining thought. Okay, now, the meditation instructions will continue as we've been going, but there will be a slight, uh, whether I gave this talk or not, 
tonight or tomorrow, I would start to make suggestions, increasingly so, if we were to be together longer, uh, to start to notice that no matter what it is you're looking at, it arises and passes away. If you're following the breath at the nostrils, notice that an inhalation has a beginning and an end. If you're, follow, if you're with the abdomen, there's a kind of a, this, the swelling of the abdomen or the uh, expansion of it has a beginning and an, and an end. If you pay attention, you can see that. A thought comes and then it's gone. Whoosh, gone. If you look, the pains that you have, the mood that you're in. In other words, this realm of rust where what moths can get at. We're examining it and it's empirical. What we're seeing is it's true. This is, an, this is impermanent. Everything is changing. Now, you might say, well, we all know that. I mean, everyone knows that. We're going to die. That's just an extension of what this is all about. But you see, that knowledge doesn't transform us. Reams of poetry about it or philosophy about it, every culture recognizes that, how short life is, the vanity of human beings. So what is different about this that we're doing? And I think what is different is that we are learning how to face that universal process, that law, that everything that arises passes away. Everything. And we're going to observe it time and time again. Sometimes it'll seem incredibly tedious. Oh no, not another breath coming and going. There it comes, now it's gone. I like being here, now that's gone. Now I don't like here, that's, that's gone. Now, in paying attention to it, if I could act it out, perhaps you've already experienced something like this, but simply intellectual understanding doesn't seem to have the power to transform us. We already know that everything's per impermanent. I think probably everyone would agree with that in this room. But what we're doing is we're sort of eyeball to eyeball with impermanence. Oh, I see. Here's a, here's a breath coming in, and now it's gone coming in and now it's gone. I feel sad. Here's, you can feel the onset of the sadness as the mind becomes sharper. It starts perceiving things more at the beginning of their, of their occurrence. And then the sadness is gone and there's happiness which begins and ends. If you do this enough times, it kind of starts to sink in. It's non-cerebral. It's at a deeper level. The best way that I can talk about it is to say we begin to absorb the fact of it the truth of this, what is potentially just an enormous cliché, that everything is impermanent. Now, it takes work. It means sitting. It's not just done in sitting, of course. It goes on wherever you are. All day long, the universe is throwing out that teaching. It never takes a holiday. Over and over and over. Impermanence, impermanence. We don't get it. And we're not living in accordance with that law, so we're out of step and we suffer enormously. We live as if it is permanent, or what we like will be permanent, or we want it to be permanent. And no matter how many times it turns out not to be, we're suckers. We go after it again. We start all over again, and again, and again, and again, and we don't learn from history. We just read about how other people didn't learn. <laughs> and then we pride ourselves about, oh, I really understand, in the Byzantine Empire, and then we just spin it out again. Uh, seeing that can be, in one sense, discouraging, in another sense, a pivotal point in practice. When you start to realize, 
this is not going to change. I'm just going to be a replica of the same, it's like a machine. Samsara, if you want to call it that. Over and over and over and over again. Okay, now, the approach taken in this form of meditation is very fine-grained, close attention to this realm of rust. Seeing, seeing the process, the oxidation. Seeing it nice and shiny and then suddenly, oh, look at that, it's getting redder and redder. Rust, oh, look at that, it's all rusty. Before that it was nice and shiny. Oh, I get it, that's what happens to things like that in that realm. They change all the time. So we begin to absorb that truth, make it our own. It's like fully eating a meal and digesting it and assimilating it, chewing it first. And it totally and completely becomes part of your body. And it has a tremendous healing power because what it starts to happen is you're living in accordance with the way things are. Because whether we believe in it or not, the world is impermanent. It keeps changing. It's uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen. We create all kinds of games to reassure us that we know what's going to happen. But how often are those expectations dashed and disappointed? So it's an actual, practical thing that gets deeper and deeper with, with practice, with doing. We're examining that realm, which according to this quote, is not a place to drop anchor. If you're looking for ultimate fulfillment in a realm that's changing all the time, good luck. The Buddha puts it, says each one of us is subject to birth, aging, illness, and death, in other words, to change. And yet we run around seeking other things that are also subject to this impermanence, trying to get ultimate fulfillment from them whether it's a person or money or a place to live or whatever it is. And we're endlessly disappointed. And he says, how can that be? How can somebody who's impermanent get ultimate fulfillment from something that itself is also impermanent? It makes no sense. It's just another way of saying the same thing. Now, in Vipassana meditation, the approach is to begin to see, uh, the first part, I'm just hoping that we're getting more comfortable with the fact that we're breathing, we walk, we eat, just that we're beginning to learn to pay attention. And then little by little, we, the noticing can become more subtle, more refined. You can start seeing things like this. And there's a cumulative effect if it's done with intensity over a period of time. And that's why people go away for three months or two weeks or a weekend, because something can build during that course of time. It's not something that happens, it's not instant nirvana. This weekend is, uh, if you've expected enormous, extraordinary transformation because you've been quiet for so long or you want a medal for it. Um, this is the beginning. It's a lifetime endeavor. And some say many lifetime endeavor. I don't know about that one. I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. I just don't know. Now, in the Buddhist approach, this noticing of the impermanence of the change, coming and going, appearing and disappearing, is a way of letting go of the attachment to that realm. So that you don't suffer the suffering of somebody who thinks that it's not going to change. It's a way of freeing ourselves from something that is destined to be unfulfilled, unfulfilling. 
There's no way in which it's going to give us ultimate fulfillment. It, there are, are happinesses and joys on that level. It's not to say that there aren't. But they're fleeting. And it's not designed to give us ultimate fulfillment. And so in, in, in the approach in this particular form of meditation, the sustained awareness and mindfulness of this realm, this changing realm, takes us gradually, some say abruptly, to what is called the unborn, or the deathless, or nirvana, or the, the, the truth, or if you will, God. Now this realm is not subject to conditions. Everything else is. Now there's some fine points about the relationship between the two and if this is so, does this mean we all have to become monks and nuns and renounce our partners and our families? No, and, I, and I'll... Maybe I should point at that right now so there is no confusion. Gradually becoming more steeped in this insight into impermanence, and that's a main meaning of Vipassana, clear seeing into this characteristic of existence, that things change, and all that's implied by that, allows you, perhaps, hopefully, to live more realistically with the things of the world, so that we don't grab and hold on to things that are, that are not going to satisfy us in that way. It doesn't mean that we have to retire to a cave, that we can't enjoy a good meal or the company of good friends or loved ones, or all the nice things that are available in the world. What is suggested is to relate to them without attachment, realistically. In other words, if you understand that certain things can give a certain, like a good meal, let's take something really humble, or ordinary, really. Although I know on these retreats, there's so little offered to you that a meal is more than just ordinary. I mean, when mealtime comes, I know what that feels like. Can we develop the capacity to enjoy the meal and be finished with it when the meal is over? There's no suffering necessarily in the joy of the meal. The suffering comes in when we want to perpetuate it. When we want another portion and we go, over, go online and there is, there's nothing more, the pot's all cleaned, cleaned out. And we suffer. Because we want it to be, if not permanent, a little, at least a little more lasting than that. And so, gradually, you start to become attuned to the way things are. It's a little bit like learning how to dance. The music is this impermanence. It's happening. But if we're dancing to a different tune, it's a very unfulfilling kind of dance. It's like dancing to something, and then someone changes the music, and you're still doing the old steps. But they've put on something else. It won't work. Okay, now, just to come at it from a slightly different way, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. This is how I read that, and that's why I, don't, I couldn't understand it, not under, I couldn't appreciate it until I'd been doing this practice for a while. Really, that's what we're doing. As we simplify this practice and do less and less about more and more, it's an invitation for the mind to start to reveal itself. 
If you just sit quietly in the, the last phase of the instructions, a kind of free attention, you just sit here. Even, we don't even use the breath. But even if you do use the breath, just allowing everything to come up. The more you do this, the more that is going to happen. Now, then the question is, are you willing to do that? Because do you, do you hear what we're entering into? This is a set of practices which are designed to bring exactly that up, what's within us. And a lot of what's within us, we don't like. We're terrified of. We're probably more frightened of ourselves than anything else in the world. There aren't long lines of people queuing up for self-knowledge, you know. (laughs) As you know, it's hard work and often, as they say around here, bad news. But it isn't really bad news, if you understand. It's a detoxification program. I mean, it's, how are we going to say goodbye to it unless we say hello? But we only want to say goodbye. Oh, here comes you, the miser. Oh, I wish I weren't so stingy. It's true. All these books say it, and I know it's true. I just want to be an open heart, generous, wonderful, great bodhisattva, disciple of Jesus, etc. But you're not. You're a tightwad. <laughs> So we don't, want to, we don't want to engage that directly. We want to skip over that step and get to perfection, to God. And what this is saying in a way that, that the road to that is through all of this. And more and more you'll start to not be so hard on yourself or you'll drop this form of meditation. It would be an exercise in, in masochism. You'll start to see that, okay, however it's come to be that uh, this is how you're composed. You're this kind of a person who had these kinds of life experiences, and, and it's coming out. You got hurt this way and that way by your parents, by the school system, by the church. Okay, fine, that all happened. And that, so you, the healing comes from a very gentle, loving openness. Not by cultivating acceptance, which is another attitude and somewhat contrived. We don't have to carry, out, carry the burden of being perfect in this practice. Far from it. Just let it all out. Here comes the monster in you. Here comes terror, suicidal tendencies, the gangster. Fine, let it all... And just bring this very gentle, sustained attention to it. And that's how it leaves. It goes away. And that capacity to pay attention gets stronger and stronger and stronger if you practice it, if you do it. And that's why it's called a practice. And if you don't do it, it doesn't get stronger. Just, it's, not, it's not mysterious from that point of view. As we look at our biographical fragments as they pour out in the spirit of that quote, In a way, that's what's happening. We're being saved. We're saving ourselves by emptying, by a purification process that seems necessary. And that takes us beyond all of that. Let me leave you with my own personal sense of this weekend. It was to begin with, and you may or may not agree with me, and I don't think I'm trying to convince you of it. I'm just telling you how I see it. If we were all to stay together, 
for an extended period of time doing this practice of Vipassana meditation. And I don't know how long an extended period is, and it varies from person to person. This emptying process would go on. It would become more natural and more comfortable for you. After a while, there wouldn't be so many shocks. The tenth time you saw all these so-called horrible things about yourself in quotes, you'd see them as just like cloud formations. There's a dark cloud and there's a light cloud. And you bring attention to it and it dissipates itself. It dissolves. A lot of the problems are not solved but dissolved in this practice. The mind starts to quite naturally move in a direction of becoming more quiet, more spacious, Images become fewer and fewer. Thoughts become fewer and fewer. Strong emotions become fewer and fewer. The space between them grows. And more and more you may find yourself in a realm of really deep peace. And we may go deeper and deeper into that. At that point we're leaving all of these forms behind. Now from my point of view, uh, take it for what it's worth. There might be a lot of different bodies here, all shaped rather differently, different sizes and ages and weights and gender and lots of different kinds of clothing. And we're all sitting in that meditation, going more and more, allowing us to to move. It's a natural process being taken in that direction. At a certain point, it's as if there would be just one mind sitting here with all these different bodies. Because my mind and your mind wouldn't be different. When we're caught up in the level of thought, feverish thought and thought about spiritual matters can become quite feverish and passionate. We're just endlessly separated from each other, trying to reconcile this form of Buddhism with that form of Buddhism and uh, Christianity, all of that. That will go on forever and I personally don't see it as having very much potential except to help the restless mind calm down a bit, work out some of its confusion and then at some point Clearly, there has to be a letting go and a movement beyond that. What St. Thomas Aquinas called it, he saw that all as straw, even the highest teachings, relative to a genuine taste of something which I'd rather not name. Again, from another point of view, personally, there was a time when there was nothing called Buddhism. And there probably will be a time again when Buddhism will disappear from the face of the earth. There was a time when there was nothing called Catholicism or Christianity, and probably, or I I would say definitely, this law of impermanence, there'll be a time when the church as you know it will disappear from the face of this earth. And the same with Judaism, Islam, you tell me what? Zoroastrianism. Yet, has the truth, does the truth disappear? Does that have anything to do with all the different forms that Uh, this human hunger to attain freedom and peace and compassion, will that die? The Buddha, when he discovered what he called the the Four Noble Truths, said that he rediscovered, he was not a radical, but he said he characterized himself as rediscovering the ancient way. Now this was 2,500 years ago, he referred to what he found as rediscovering the ancient way. It's the eternal the perennial truth, which has so many beautiful expressions. But for me personally, if you get locked into them and become so very literal about it and divide up against the other forms, 
you'll have all that war and destruction and pain that religions caused that many of you didn't like in the, in the free discussion period this afternoon. For me, it's uh, liberating to see it that way. It doesn't cheapen Buddhism or make it seem like it's a joke because it's not going to be here. It's a very beautiful form that I'm really... I don't know how I could formulate my gratitude for having come in contact with it. It's made all the difference for me. Similarly for Christianity, Islam, Judaism, but not the literal form and to me, any attachment to name and form is doomed. Perhaps any attachment is to anything, which is not cynicism or nihilism or any, any of those isms. Okay, thank you. It's just another way to say, keep sitting and walking. The retreat's not over yet. <laughs> This afternoon in the discussion, we had a great many questions. <laughs> and they were certainly impressive questions from where I was sitting. A lot, of, a lot of depth and a lot of real questions. Um, and I suppose you come away remembering some, and I come away remembering some others. I come away remembering one especially. Um, in the midst of all these profound questions, someone said, how should I serve? How should I serve? Um, and that, that question is better than anybody's answer to it. That question takes hold. How should I serve? I, I received a letter from a 13-year-old girl a couple of months ago, a girl down in Florida who had read my book. And in her religion class, they were discussing um, religious leadership, I guess. And the nun who taught the religion class suggested that each child write to someone in some kind of position of religious leadership and asked them a question like this. What does your community, in my case, my monastery, need most right now? And what are you doing to minister to that need? It's a smart nun. <laughs> Not just the first one, but the second one. And what are you doing to meet that need? Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I put off answering that, that kid's letter. <laughs> um, what are you, how shall I serve? Um, I, I'm, uh, I'm also writing a Bible, by the way. Uh, yeah. That's going too far. <laughs> Well, people complaining about the old Bible. <laughs> Try something new. But, it, but if you read my Bible, you find out things the, the other Bible doesn't tell you. For instance, uh, did, did, uh, did you ever hear how God learned how to puke? <laughs> see, see, the, see, the other Bible doesn't tell you that. 
My, my Bible begins, uh, in the beginning I created the heavens and the earth. Then I peopled the heavens and I peopled the earth. But these people started drifting apart. And I wasn't expecting that. They kept drifting apart and I, I, I began to call after them. But they didn't seem to hear me and I called again. They just kept going. And I thought, well, I better send someone. So I sent someone, but they didn't hear him either. And I sent someone else. And finally, a woman came up to me and she said, I know who you are. You can send this child in my womb, this female child. And she'll bring them the news of a new covenant, a covenant of happiness. At first, they'll laugh at her and they'll, they'll reject her, treat her pretty shabbily, but finally they'll, they'll accept that new covenant. Oh, wonderful, I thought. When will the child be born, I asked her. And she said, oh, a thousand years from now. The child will have to grow in my womb for a thousand years, drinking in all the happiness they lose by drifting apart. And then finally, when she offers them this new covenant, uh, the covenant of happiness, they, they, they'll accept it. So that's how I learned how to wait. And while I was waiting, I took to scribbling down some words on slips of paper. And I left them here and I left them there. And I suppose they did some good but boy, the way they interpreted my words. They used my words to justify their wars, to push guilt on one another, to further this separation and division. My words. But worst of all was when some of them started to stand up and present themselves as experts on my word. And I tell the people just what my words meant. That's how I learned how to puke. <laughs> how anti-clerical can you get? <laughs> How can I serve? Uh, when, when I become Pope, I'm, we're going we're to have a new creed. Um, and, and the first article of this new creed is, I am stupid. <laughs> For, for once in history, we're going to have ecumenical agreement. <laughs> Amen, brother, you said it. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, but every priest has got to start the creed and the people. That, 
Okay. Although a girl t uh, told me, a 16-year-old girl told me she thought that was a bit harsh. Uh, I should change it to, I am cute. <laughs> but we're all cute, you know, and we're all a little stupid, and, and we don't know. And even old Aristotle, you know, centuries ago, he, he saw that, and he said, that's why you, you group together, because all the wisdom is not put in one place. And we forget that good, you know. We forget that good. And so that's why I want to have a, a circle, you know, a sacred circle. And, and uh, that's why when I get to be Pope, there are no more sermons. The priest will read the text of Scripture and then he'll sit down and shut up. <laughs> and, and various ones among the audience will get up and say, that story is true. It's about me. I am the blind man. And he'll explain how. And then the other one will get up, and that story is true. It's about me. Someone else, that story is about, it's true. It's about me. I have this healing hand. Um, but the gifts are spread out. And we forget, and individuals think they have the gift, the wisdom, and groups feel we have the gift, the wisdom. Uh, and it's stupid. And one thing I appreciate about the Theravada, um, it's so, so austere, so no baloney, you know. <laughs> it's refreshing. Um, but uh, all the Buddhist groups have agreement on on the three poisons. And I think when that's the case, other pe people from other traditions ought to pay attention and say, yeah, maybe that corresponds to something in reality, these three poisons. What are the three poisons, the things that make you sick, get inside you and make you sick? Well, you know what they are. Uh, I think what you usually hear is greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, I, I'd kind of like to say attachment, aversion, and, and um, ignorance. Uh, and in, in reply to this question, how shall I serve? If somebody's got three poisons in him, he can't serve too well. He's sick. He doesn't have the energy. Or maybe his eyesight's not too good. Blinded by this attachment or aversion or ignorance. He can't see too well. He can't sort out reality from non-reality because he's got various things in his head. And so he can't serve too well. So if he could be purified, and this Theravada way is the way of purification. It's not for some kind of holiness, some oughtness, but just to get rid of the stuff that's impeding what you intend to do. You intend to be happy, you like to be happy, but you've got these poisons that are making you unhappy. You'd like to serve, you'd like to help your children, you'd like to help people in Africa or whatever, but you've got these poisons. You can't see straight, you don't have the energy, 
you're all, a lot of your energy is just tied up in being sick and trying to get over it for yourself. You know? So um, I, I find these rather precious, and I recommend them to you to see them as something inside yourself, in, in yourself individually or yourself as a group, whatever group. Um, for instance, the, the first one is a positive thing, is attachment, clinging, uh, greed. And it's not just uh, gross greed, as, as the word greed suggests, but any kind of holding on to something which is passing away. Holding on to something which, uh, if you open your eyes, you realize, well, you know, it's back there. That was fine for 10 years ago, but, you know, I'm 30 now, or I'm 40 now, or this is 1985. To move on, to be able to move on, instead of just clinging to something that worked well 10 years ago. Uh, that's a poison. It becomes counterproductive. In history, you have cases like this of uh, military powers. They, somebody got, had the best bow and arrow in the world, and they kept perfecting their bows and arrows. And someone else invented the, uh, the rifle, and they're just obsolete. And then the people who invented the rifle, they kept perfecting their rifle. And pretty soon, someone else in, invents the tank. What good is the perfect rifle? And they go perfecting the tanks, and someone else gets into the air. The things are good in their time, but there's a holding on to ideas and feelings and things, and that pertains to groups as well as individuals. Likewise, the, um, on the negative side, there's aversion, just pushing something away. The white people perhaps pushing away the black people. You know, the Catholic people pushing away the Jewish people, pushing away ideas, pushing away thinkers, aversion. <clears throat> it might be hatred, it might, it might be anger, but it might be just this little resistance to the truth. And that's the name of the game in psychotherapy, resistance. You're paying the guy thousands of dollars and resisting all the way. <laughs> that's the poison, aversion. And then the, uh, but the, the real root one, you know, is, is that ignorance where you got the wrong idea. You mean well, you, you go climbing up the mountain, but you don't know that you have a weak heart. There's no aversion there, there's no attachment there, but you're just ignorance. You don't know who you are. You're a guy with a weak heart. You can't go up that hill so fast. And we have all sorts of ignorance. We don't know who we are. We don't know our powers. It's like a person who's smart and thinks she's stupid, or, or someone who's stupid and thinks she's smart. You, know? <laughs> you bump up against reality all the time. But this is going on all the time. And this is... Uh, it's going on in groups, too. They think they're smart when they're really stupid, or they think they've got the whole picture when they don't. And it's the great task of a mother to help a child know who she is. Um, and this, uh, this little technique in the Theravada, I, I was taking Tibetan Buddhist monks around to visit the Catholic monasteries, and in the course of discussions, I'd hear them looking down their nose at the Theravada, you know. It's only Hinayana. 
uh, what the Buddha gave to beginners. And this, uh, this little technique in the Theravada, I was taking Tibetan Buddhist monks around to visit the Catholic monasteries, and in the course of discussions, I'd hear them looking down their nose at the Theravada. You know? It's only Hinayana. It's uh, what the Buddha gave to beginners. Well, maybe so, but uh, it seems to me if anybody wants to serve and wants to be a bodhisattva, a nice place to start is getting rid of some of the poisons that tie up his energy and impede his, his effectiveness. Um, and so I, I, um, I feel that I, I, I like to commend that to you, that, and that's what this mindfulness is, this kind of meditation. It's looking at the reality that comes to your head without attachment, without aversion. And the ignorance is precluded just by the fact that you're looking. When you don't notice it, well, that's a basic kind of ignorance. Now, there are other kinds of ignorance included in this expression, the third one, third poison delusion. But there's that simple one where you don't notice. The stuff is working on you all the time. And you think it's, it's him. He's doing something wrong. You don't realize it's me. I am the one who's with an aversion. I am the one who's irritated and worked up and so on. Uh, or this is working on me and I don't even notice it because I'm not in touch with my body. I'm not in touch with my feelings. I'm sore as the devil, but I don't even know it. It's a problem men have. Um, so this, this form of uh, Buddhist meditation takes good aim at these. And I recall um, the recent, I think Joseph at the recent uh, retreat I made with him said to me, uh, you know, this, this is what nirvana is. Just looking at life without attachment, aversion, and ignorance, delusion. So that when you're sitting here doing it, you're exercising enlightenment. It's a very great thing. And if it could spread, if the individuals could pick it up, the mothers could pick it up, the clergy could pick it up, if the groups could pick it up, if the church group or the America or Russia, whatever, could pick it up and open its eyes and let go of its private attachments, if it could let go of its pet aversions, if it could let go of some of its ignorance about itself, marvelous thing. So God bless the Theravada Buddhism, and I'm proud to be part of it. I find it very enriching, very simple. Um, I don't blush to be called a Buddhist. Um, and I don't blush to be with you, <coughs> because we, we need one another. And there's a basic uh, form of that ignorance third poison is that we don't, to think that we don't, that we're independent, when in reality we're interdependent. I need the insights of a woman. 
doesn't make any sense for me to shut her up and have her listen to me all the time. It doesn't make any sense. I need the insights and the affectivity of a black person. So I need what the Chinese know. And so, so it's good to be with you. Very good. Some silence, or would you like some questions? Or would you like... If any of you have any questions, that would be fine. I think we, a few minutes of questions would, might be useful. If not, we can just sit in silence for a few moments. One of the points that came up uh, that Joseph brought up at the uh, 10-day retreat in December uh, was something that struck me at the time. And in discussing the uh, nirvana and the, the, the path to the noble truths, um, the uh, ultimate uh, was said to be uh, uh, wisdom, and wisdom is the light of the world. And uh, I was struck by the, the phrase that Christ used, who said, I am the light of the world. And uh, there's so many things that are uh, resonant in uh, Christianity with uh, some of the things that, at least in principle, that the Buddha uh, brings forth, that uh, the thought came to my mind uh, with the 500-year gap, say, between the Buddha, who lived 2,500 years ago, I wondered if there was ever enough uh, transmission of some of these thoughts so that there was any kind of uh, interchange and possible commentary that that the Christ may have uh, adapted some of these things to his own teaching. There are some books that maintain that. I don't know how to evaluate them. That uh, Jesus spent time in India, learned various yogic perfections. Uh, there's a, someone now, I think, a woman by the name of Prophet. It's her last name who's saying things like that, but there, for quite a while there have been people saying that. And in India, there are people who believe that. At your Mass this afternoon, the second reading was from the letter of St. John, who was the beloved disciple of Christ, uh, in which he says, Brethren, let us love one another, for love is from God. Um, God is love. Uh, there's a, a Catholic uh, priest, scripture scholar from New York, now up in Canada, 
who about 10 years ago wrote a book with a thesis that that comes right out of Buddhism, that God is love, not God is loving, God loves, that God is love. And he said if they had understood what he was saying and how, how Buddhist that was, they probably would have condemned it. It wouldn't have been part of the, the scriptures. <laughs> but they didn't quite get the point. Um, and then, of course, the, the Buddhist monks have always been great travelers, so they may very well have ended up in... I, I'd like to say, in, in connection with that, that the... Um, that the about the Bible. Um, I have a, a twin sister, and she told me that she was taking a, a course in poetry last year, and her teacher liked my stories. So it took, it took to uh, reading one at the beginning of each class and then discussing it. So I said, well, that's interesting. Why don't you bring along a cassette recorder? I'd, I find that rather interesting to hear them discussing my book. So, she, so she did, and she sent me a cassette. And you know, it was funny. Here was this teacher with a PhD in English it was manhandling my story. <laughs> a woman handling it. <laughs> no, she didn't have it at all. She, she was saying, oh, he's got this in the first line, this in the fourth line, therefore he means such and such. Um, and these ordinary folk, you know, they, they were doing much better. But, but there's a case of the ignorance, huh? Uh, but what I saw in reflecting on that and, and my, my experience of writing stories is that, um, gee, I don't, ca I don't care for them to be preoccupied to figure out what I meant. I don't think that's the best use of that, those stories. You enter into a dialogue with those stories. Those stories are about you. You read them, they're about you. It's a mirror for you. And you see if they're true. See whether this fits you. See whether you make this mistake that this fellow is making in this story or whatever. And I come to think that that's the way to read the Bible. And I come to think that maybe the fellows who wrote it, uh, that's what the way they were thinking. Now, see, we, we tend to think of it as coming you know, from on high, and then we... we after a while, we resist that. But here, I was writing these stories, and I'm saying, well, these guys wrote them too, you know? And, and maybe, maybe they're about me, and maybe the way to read it is about me. And then I find that in the early history of my uh, order, uh, uh, monks, they, that's the way they read the Bible. They would see it as about themselves today, not about Moses or even about Christ simply, but about me. And... Uh, and so I see, see that if you do that systematically, you're going to find out a lot about who you are. The Son of God, that's who you are. You're part divine and you're part human. You're part manifestation of God and you're part shit, if you don't mind, mind my expression. <laughs> no. And that does more justice to the reality than just take either one or the other, you know? But, uh, but it's hard to do full justice to the reality, and you need a lot of stories. So I got 49 stories in my book, but you, you, besides the, the Jewish stories, and Catholic stories, and there are Buddhist stories, and then there are Hindu stories, you know? 
then there's uh, Dostoevsky. And I think, I think that, uh, and all the stories are true. If you don't see that, you haven't worked with them long enough. You know, reality is quite complex. And the one who thinks that he's got it all figured out, he makes God puke. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I, uh, I commend the Bible to you as, as your story. I think it's, it's another way of saying it. It's a, it's a book of stories for a mother to tell her child. That's a very important thing for a mother to tell her child stories because she t- conveys his little kid The mother conveys to the child who she is and what life is about, what it means when grandma dies, you know, what it means when various things happen, what life is like, what it means to be a girl, you know. She conveys that by best she can relating to the child and best she can according to her own understanding. So it's a story, you know. It's not the ultimate, it's not the only story. Some woman in China tells some other story, you know woman in India tells some other story. The story about God is a story. The point of God is the same as the point of no God. The point of it is kind of that you're stupid. That's it. The point of it is that life is bigger than, than you can fit into your head. Life is bigger than you know. So you get this God figure who knows everything. It reminds you you don't know everything. You know, he's up there in the sky, so he sees the whole scene. And he's been around for millions of years, are he really? You know, he can look into the future. But you're, you have a limited view. And so you make up stories. You don't know what it would be like to be like that, so you make up stories about that to tell the child. And... Uh, and then the one who comes along, you should always in church have somebody in the back pew who stands up and says, no God. <laughs> always say that because that shows the limitation of your story. You get locked into your story. You know, you're trying to F the ineffable. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's done all the time. And so somebody's got to get up and say, no, God. You've got to say, bullshit, or whatever. You do. Right there in church. But we lock them out so we don't hear that. And so we, just, we get locked into our story. It's what, what the Theravada Buddhists call attachment. You get locked into your story. Um, and so you think that this little thing you see is, is it. Now, we do this in society, too. I mean, we've got an American culture, which is a pretty narrow, stupid culture. No imagination. We count everything. Measure everything, you know, put a price tag on everything. Progress, you know, the car this year is better than the car last year. It goes faster, you know. That's our culture. That's, that's getting locked into something pretty darn narrow. In all the other cultures, they had stars and they had angels, and, you know. Mm. So you, you love the story, you know, and treasure the story, but you, know, you don't have to get locked in. You don't have to say it means that somebody else's story is right. 
is wrong. I'd like to ask much. a question about prayer. Sure. Uh, to Larry, it would be to what extent is uh, is the possible practice prayer? And Father Theophane, somebody told me once that uh, that early Christians may have may well have meditated that somewhere along the line the church decided that left brain discursive was the word that was given the paragraph uh, language prayer was the, the right way uh, I'd like to hear just a little bit about how, how the possible might be part of the prayer life oh, yeah. yeah well that happened as a matter of fact it, it, uh, you know you, you, you dry up the right side and you don't make up any more stories. No mother may make up a new story. You just tell them the old story, right? Get this thing under control. You know? <laughs> so control is kind of the name of the game. Yeah. See, that, that was the, um, in our tradition anyway, the, the Roman Catholic tradition. The Romans, their thing was politics, the political genius. And so the Rome, Roman Catholic Church inherited that political control, you know, cleverness about how to control everything. So that was one of the ways they did it. And when they got scared at the time of the Protestant Reformation, they really locked themselves up into controlling everything. Um, but um, I, I think what, one of the advantages of, of this kind of meditation for today uh, is in the... Uh, there are four foundations of mindfulness, and one is mindfulness of body feelings, body states. Uh, and I think that our tradition, our culture too, has done a job on the body. Uh, there's a lot of interest today, re-interest in, in the body. And I think that the religion has locked it up. That's, that's where the sin is or something, you know, the, the Catholic tradition the body. And um, so there's something special in this uh, mindfulness of the body states that makes us available to see our bodies as sacred and important. Uh, you just spend some time on your foot. You know, if I ask you how long your big toe is without looking at it, how, how long would you say? Half, half inch, an inch, inch and a half, two inches, three inches? And then you probably don't know. You're probably pretty far off. But if you would stand up and, and just bring your heel up the way a woman has on, when she has high heels, you bring your, your heel up and let that hinge work and look down and see how long that hinge is, you might be surprised at how long your, your big toe is and the toe next to it. But that's because you're not in contact with it. You don't haven't paid any attention to it. But in in this, uh, and and that means that in little ways throughout your life you're you're abusing your body because you think it's this way and, and it's that way and your your, your messages from the brain are. But I, I think that's a rectification of the uh, the Christianity's abuse of the body. I think I expect every psychotherapist has certain awareness of. Um, the, um, 
And then also, if, uh, for us anyway, the, the certain considerable amount of dogmatism. And the Theravada get, just gets right in there. So what do you see? You know, not what do they tell you you ought to see, but what, what do you see? What do you... So, uh, uh, Mary Daly is a, a woman theologian who teaches up in this Jesuit college here, Boston College. They're trying to get her out, but <laughs> the kids rebel. But anyway, she's a pretty tough woman. She's, she's a, in one of her books, she says, uh, she talks about the great lie. Uh, she says that the, uh, the great lie, it, it, the idea is you tell a big enough lie, people will swallow it. You tell a little lie, they catch out. But uh, the great lie is our teaching about transubstantiation. Uh, this is not bread and wine, this is the body and blood of Christ. She says, see what they're saying. They're saying, don't pay attention to your experience. Don't pay attention to what you see and what your brain says. Don't pay attention, we'll tell you what it means. Yeah. But we do that a lot, and, and this kind of stuff breaks that up. You just, you just look. You, know, you don't wait for Larry to tell you what, what you see. You just see what you see. Yeah. And that's fine, whatever you see. So you get a, a developing uh, sensitivity to, to life and experience from that, daring to do that. I think uh, you, uh, a lot of people just have to get away from their religious tradition today. You know, the, these Buddhist places are peopled with uh, people who brought up Catholics and brought up Jews and, and haven't been back, you know, for a number of years. And I think it's necessary today because of this kind of thing where something is pushed down your throat and you don't, you aren't allowed to the sensitivity to feel for yourself well enough, you know. And hopefully, so in other words, you treat it as, as a minor. You may be 50 years old, but you treat it as a minor. Uh, hopefully, just as people have to get away from their mother, the mother's domineering, have to get away from home, you know. Uh, Ten years later, they still can't go back for New Year's or Christmas. Well, they're still hooked. And it'd be nice if they, someone could encourage them, go back as an adult, you know, and just laugh at her a little bit or, or you know, whatever you have to do. And, and so the same way with the, the religious traditions, if you, you know, they, you're used to that position of minor, and then you go away, well, you don't have to stay away for the rest of your life. You go back a little bit adult and don't, you don't have to get that mad at, uh, at Father O'Shea or whoever he is. He's doing the best he can. It's just like your mother, you know. Just uh, take, take, it's all yours. The whole tradition is yours. So why should you be locked out or lock yourself out? Uh, but go back as an adult and smile. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. <laughs> I, I talk too much. I'm sorry. You have a question, but I can't see so well back there. But the question about vipassana and prayer life. I don't think I'm qualified to answer that, but perhaps you can help with that. Could you rephrase that question? Repeat that question? Um, well, uh, to what extent is uh, meditation prayer in the Christian tradition? Well... I just, see, I, I don't know what people are meaning by prayer. A lot of people mean by prayer talking. And that, actually, that's a very good prayer. It, it's a, quite a good prayer because we are people and we're interpersonal. 
all our lives long we're interpersonal. And it's unfortunate that we don't know how to talk to a tree. But you go into someone like, like Jean Houston, I've worked with Jean Houston for quite a while, you know, she'll help you to talk to a tree. And you hear mothers talking to the infant, and you hear people talking to their dog or, or do talking to their plant, you know? And then you get these studies that are fine, yeah, that's a good idea. It gives you an insight, a, a better way of relating. Um, and so talking in prayer is not a bad idea at all. Not a bad idea, you know, if you can manage it. Now, if it turns you off, I... Uh, but to talk, you know, talk to the whole, talk to that which is beyond all the relatives, the particular, the forms. To talk to that. And if you're a father, you're in a privileged position because that's the basic image in the Judeo-Christian tradition that God is a father. That's a story about the ultimate. He relates to you as a father. He's not your enemy. So you can talk to him as a father. A lot of people can talk to Christ well that way. You can talk to Mary. And it doesn't fit everybody. And you've got to be careful you don't um, you know, look down your nose at somebody who uses some other form that you don't understand. It doesn't fit you. So this uh, Vipassana is quite a different thing from that kind of prayer. But I don't know. You know, this God is, is love and God is truth. That's kind of the point of the, the absolute. We, this is, I forget the name of this. Uh, there's a book um, in recent years about the development of, of consciousness in which the fellow sets down the first principle, make a distinction. Or, yeah, make a distinction. So you draw a line. And as soon as you draw the line, you start thinking about this side and that side. Before you drew that line, it's, just, it's all one. But that's the forms. And that's why we're up against every day with all these different forms. So we make big distinctions. Oh, these people are black and these people are white. Oh. Huh. These people are Russian, these people are. Yeah. We, we make those distinctions and then we take them seriously. But I think one of the, the basic functions of religion is to keep you oscillating between the forms and that which is prior to all the distinctions. That which unites them, reunites them. Fine, distinguish, fine. And your image of, of God as Father is like that. He's everybody's Father. He's not just the Father of, the, of these, these four children. He's no longer a particular God, but he's going to see him as a universal God. So that unites you with these other people. I have the same father. But I think that's one of the functions of religion, to do that all the time. Take, this, take the form seriously, but then go, to, go back to the silence. Go back to God. Go back to no form. And one of the problems is we have to use stories and we've got to lock God into a form. And so he's you know, he's dividing us from the Buddhists, say. He's dividing us from the Hindus because we got this guy here. Well, that's, wait a minute. 
That's attachment. You want to, you know, all, all, our, all our forms and our words are supposed to lead us beyond themselves. That's what be be good religion. When I get to be pope, we'll have it. <laughs> I think I can add one thing to that, and, and perhaps this will help you in your attitude towards sitting, physical posture. Very often, the way it's talked about, it's, uh, it seems very physiological and instrumental. That is, if you sit straight, spine is erect. Uh, there's a more direct flow of energy to the brain, a lot of that kind of talk, and then you'll be more concentrated. There's a subtle flow of energy that's possible when you're sitting erect, and, I'm, and there's truth to that. You can experience it as you become more comfortable, as your posture becomes erect, stable, and comfortable. But there's another way to look at the meditative posture. In the Buddhist approach, it's really the icon, the main icon is of someone in meditation. My own feeling about it, certainly for myself when I sit, is it's devotional. It's not instrumental, although it may be that as well. There are uh, archaeological excavations which have produced little figures sitting in meditative postures long before India. It may be a a universal kind of body language for, for somebody to just be sitting in a contemplative mode. So that when you assume the posture, if you're seeing it in a very narrow, instrumental way, it may be sterile. And of course you're not interested in doing it. But if you can understand it as a kind of prayer, that is, it's a body language. You're you're stopping all the activity and running after this and running away from that. You put a halt to it and you just sit. And sometimes it's said, especially in the Zen tradition, if you sit like a Buddha, you become a Buddha. And so they put a tremendous emphasis on the posture. But it's not literal, it has this inner meaning. It's an expressive act, much as dancing would be. Only we don't think of something that's not moving as being expressive, but it is expressing something. Maybe that will uh, give you a bit more encouragement to sit. I know that at times it's hard at the beginning. Um, this, yeah, I, I think there was another couple of people. Yes. Uh, just, I just want to make a brief comment to something you said earlier from the evening. Uh, about go back to your tradition as as an adult if you want to. And just to share an experience with my working, I was out for 15 years, the, the 60s, um, and, and the way that the, the church handled the moral crises of the 60s sort of drove me out. And I, I figured three years ago it would work because I was thought I was over all the mad and all that stuff. And, and, I, and I'm not mad, but it just, it, it um, I thought it would work, but it just produces a, a very um, profound sadness in that there's still the same kind. I haven't bothered to look at it much for a while. There's still the same. It looks like moral insensitivity to me that just pervades sin. Hmm? Sin. Well, that's yeah. It's a stronger and better word maybe. Yeah. And and it just it, it isn't working in terms of of uh, offering anything or enhancing anything or being a, a useful vehicle of any kind. Well, whatever you can manage. I, I've got a brother who is a parish priest, and I, I had occasion to be in his parish for a week. I was doing some other work and staying with him. And I, I got a certain insight into a lot of valuable stuff going on there for a lot of people. Um, 
I know a lot of good priests, and I know a lot of good sisters, and they're good friends of mine, and I'm not talking about them. Yeah, well, this wasn't, it's not especially a thrilling parish. It's just kind of normal. It's a ha happy, <laughs> a certain happy uh, parish, but it's, it's, it's not in Cambridge, you know? <laughs> It's in suburbia, Westchester. And I saw it fulfilling a need in a way that, that uh, probably I wouldn't. Uh, uh, one girl came, I gave a sermon there, one girl came up to me and she she's raving about my sermon, you know? And why can't the other priest blah, 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 blah? And I said, well, you know, the different gifts. I'm, I'm off by myself in a strange world and I rarely have to preach. And um, I have a chance to think about, it. he's busy, you know, binding up the wounds. Uh, and if the maturity is to, you know, accept the gift he has without being all that mad about gift he doesn't have. But, but anyway, what I was seeing was she, fine, there are people like her for whom it wasn't working that well, and certainly, you know, for you it's not working. But I, I just got this impression, well, there's hundreds of people week after week, it's, it's fine, they're better off with it than without it. Considerably better off with it than without it, you know. And so, God bless them. <laughs> Why does they leave everybody else, though? The people what? that it doesn't work for. Then you jam. What else is there? I mean, you know, what else works for everybody? You know, nothing works for everybody. You, 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 you know, you don't, you don't just stop the thing because it doesn't work for a good many people. If it works for some people, well, great. You know? And the others? Well, you get something else for them. I'm, I'm not saying you crowd them all in, or they all want to go. But I'm saying it's, it's not an improvement to close down this thing. Uh, yeah, but that still doesn't address the need of those for whom it doesn't work. Though. Well, I agree with that. I, I, I don't have any difficulty. That's why I'm saying I'm, you know, I'm embarrassed about the Catholic Church. It just doesn't. But, but I think it's got a pretension of universality that it can't live up to. That's what I feel. It just kind of assumes it ought to have this universality to, to work for everybody. And I, I, in the Middle Ages, you know, you, all the religions were geographic. But nowadays, Buddhism is right down the street. And Hinduism is right down the street. You know, so people get a chance to choose. And I, I, I don't see how the church could become that. So what happens to the outsider then? They just kind of either stay there invisibly or go off somewhere and die? No, 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 no. Go, go somewhere else. Go wherever they can, they can find sustenance. That leaves them still outside the searching. Yeah, but, but what are you laying a trip on me for? I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it if all the rest of the clergy are stupid. <laughs> well, uh, there are a lot of questions. Um, I think that perhaps uh, it'd be good to save them for the, tomorrow. There'll be a chance of there for me even tomorrow.